Make your way, if you will, to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. It seems that gratitude has fallen on hard times. I can remember a day when saying thank you at the right time was a sign of common decency. A kid in my day who did not say thank you could count on receiving a lecture, not only from parents, but even from a stranger. You just needed to know how to say thank you. It was expected widely. I think those days are long gone. Working on rare occasion, but occasionally as a volunteer at our local elementary school, I can tell you that the custom of saying thank you is almost extinct. I was at a gas station recently and the shutoff valve on one of the pumps was malfunctioning. I didn't want to take the time, but thinking that I should do unto others as I'd have them do unto me, I thought I'd let them know that there was a lot of gasoline that was being spilled because of this malfunctioning pump. Thank you did not seem to factor into this man's vocabulary as I shared that simple point. Lady at McDonald's recently gave me more change than was owed to me, and I brought that point to her and returned the change. And again, you would think she had never heard the words thank you in her life. One of the most memorable failures to express thanks that I've ever heard was recounted by a pastor who ministered in a community where there was a large Amish population. And on his way to church one rainy Sunday morning, he saw up ahead a horse-drawn buggy that was stopped along the side of the road. And as he slowly passed, he looked and noticed that on the slippery uh, road, the horse had fallen and was on its side. And he saw two Amish men trying with all of their might to get the horse back up on its legs. Here he is, a Baptist pastor in his Sunday best and driving in the rain in his nice car and saying, boy, they're sure having a bad day. And then he was convicted in his heart, yeah, and you ought to help them through it. So he gets out of the car with nothing but his suit on, and he gets there with these men and leans up against that horse and helps them to get the horse back up on its feet. You can imagine what he looks like at this point in the pouring rain and horses aren't clean animals necessarily and he's a mess and has to go home. And he said as he recounted this story, it was as if I was invisible. They never even said hello or thank you or anything. And he got back into his car and in the pouring rain rolled down his window and as he passed by these two Amish men said, Thank you! Which they didn't really know how to handle, so they just waved. (laughs) And he admitted that, he had the first one to admit how wrong that was for him to respond that way, but he was really irritated. And I think even though he was wrong and we admit that, you understand what he's thinking. Ingratitude is ugly. The man wasn't asking for any money. 
And so often in life as we do such things, we don't ask for any acknowledgement necessarily, but ingratitude is ugly. Ingratitude is an ugly, self-centered blindness to a benefit that one person receives from another. A blindness to a benefit that one receives from another. On a social level, this disconnectedness from reality is ugly. It is immature. It is insensitive. But on a deeper spiritual level, ingratitude is far more than ugly. Ingratitude is a cancer of the soul. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, remember as Paul looks back and he looks at the very heart of depravity, what does he say? He epitomizes the fallen heart of mankind with these words. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But in place of giving thanks and glorifying God, he says their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. A darkened heart blind to the benefits of God's grace. And so it does not express thanks. Looking into the future, Paul warns in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 that, and I quote, terrible times will come in the last days. And he gives this long list of vices that will characterize people in these last days. And among those horrible vices, he lists people who are ungrateful. People blind to the grace of God, spiritual ingrates. As Jesus continues his ministry in these weeks leading up to his crucifixion in the book of Luke, he encounters high levels of ingratitude, one ingrate after another. And in a brief encounter with one man, he exposes this cancer of the human soul to his listeners. And by God's grace, and as we call upon his spirit, he will show us in this mirror our own hearts and teach us what God expects and teach us how to see the grace of God. As we come to Luke chapter 17, we find Jesus on the border of Samaria and Galilee. We read there in verse 11 of Luke 17, Now on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As we've noted repeatedly, chapter 9 and verse 51 is a major transition point in the book of Luke. It is a thematic emphasis that he is now on his way to Jerusalem. But in fact, it all is also, of course, a geographical indication. Luke doesn't tell us every time that Jesus shows up in Jerusalem or detail what goes on there. John fills in many of those blanks for us. But Jesus is leaving for Jerusalem in the sense that he has set his face here to die. But I think uniquely here, in this reference to Jerusalem, we have the indication that Jesus is now moving to Passover. And this is the final Passover where he will give his life. If we would put together some of the ideas that John shares with us as historians seek to piece together these last movements of Jesus, it would appear at this point that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead at Bethany, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. That brings Jesus into a place of great danger. 
For the Jewish authorities are now determined at all costs to kill him. There is a price on Lazarus' head, and there is a price on Jesus' head. And so Jesus, in a, in a lot of trouble, and I think purposefully orienting his last days to Passover, knows that there's still some time that needs to pass. And so, in a sense, he hides out and buys some time in the small village of Ephraim, to the north of Jerusalem. So it might strike us as rather odd at this point that Jesus is moving from south to north, and yet it says that he's headed to Jerusalem. But in the big scheme of Jesus' life, what is happening is he will continue to head north away from the hot spot of Jerusalem where there's a price on his head. And as he moves northward, he comes to the border of Samaria and Galilee, and then will head east across the Jordan, head down south along the Jordan, traveling with pilgrims on their way to Passover, and in a sense, hiding among them. It's, it's a unique kind of hiding in that every place where he arrives, there are people there to wait upon him and to receive him and to seek healing from him. But he'll make his way then across the Jordan at Jericho and work his way up to Jerusalem for his final days. So he's heading to Jerusalem in a big loop, heading north, then east, then south, then back west across the Jordan to Jerusalem. So as we, I just lay that out here at this point in the book of Luke, knowing now that we're headed toward Perea, that is on the east side of Jordan, and a ministry that will take place there. But I think it is very conceivable that Jesus is here going up to Galilee, not only to get away from trouble, but also perhaps to pick up some pilgrims that he will journey with to Jerusalem, including, remember those women who went with him providing his needs, feeding uh, the group that is moving, and some even providing financial aid to him, and these women will be watching as Jesus dies. So they will be with him to the end. It's very conceivable that he is now coming to pick up this larger group and through the next months to organize this group as they travel back to Jerusalem for Passover. So with that in mind, he finds himself here at Galilee and Samaria. And I think there's a very interesting, unique a healing that takes place here that fits into this whole picture of what is going on in Jesus' life right now. We notice that he encounters ten lepers at an unnamed village here on the border of Samaria and Galilee, beginning at verse 12. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. As we know, leprosy was a repulsive disease. It involved lesions and swollen sores. It was a skin disease, but it also often was accompanied by the death of nerve endings. And so lepers would literally rub off their fingers and nose and ears and toes because they couldn't feel them. It was a contagious disease, and so the Jewish fathers had forbid a leper to touch or even get close to another person who was healthy. And they had rules, and very strict rules, of how close you could get. And when the wind was blowing the wrong way, it was a long, long ways away. But even in the closest proximity that they would permit, a leper really could not even have an intimate conversation with a healthy person. They were, in the ultimate sense of the word, outcasts. 
And coupled with this position in society was the theme among many Jewish teachers that leprosy was a sign of God's unique judgment upon an individual. This was the disease of sinners, outcasts, the walking dead in Israel. These socially isolated men know all about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They can only talk among themselves, really. There's very little communication with any healthy person, but they know what's going on in Israel at this time. And they are thrilled, you, would, you can imagine, to see that Jesus has come into their village, and so they shout out to him. They can't get near anybody in this group, but they shout out to him saying, Jesus, have pity on us. Master, they call him. A unique reference. And Jesus does just that in a most unusual manner. Jesus typically will touch the person that he is healing. We could go into reasons why that is the case. I'm sure there are many, but he proves here that he certainly does not need to touch anyone. For he says to them uh, in verse 14, when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and they were healed. He does not touch them. He really does not, it doesn't appear, speak to them at any length. He just says, turn and go to the priest. Now, what's that all about? If we knew the Old Testament law intimately, we would know that in Leviticus chapter 14, there, is, there are stipulations to what must take place with a leper. If you were somehow healed, they didn't know how, but somehow your leprosy went away. There was no medical treatment for it or anything like that. But if your, me- if your leprosy went away, you needed to go to the priest. And the priest would observe you, and they had certain rules and regulations to observe to see if a person really had, in fact, been healed. And then there was ritual that would go into ceremonial ritual that would bring you back into society and indicate the grace and goodness of God concerning your healing. So when he says, go show yourself to the priest, lepers can't show themselves to priests. You don't get anywhere near anybody if you have leprosy. But if you've been healed... That's when you go and show yourself to the priest. So by saying this, they know what, exactly what he means. Turn and you will be healed. They have been asking for healing, and Jesus is saying, I grant you the healing. Go and show yourself to the priest. Can you imagine that scene as they turn? And I think it requires that simple faith. But in that simple faith, they turn and they start heading off to a local priest. Can you imagine that as they go? I, mean, I don't know what it would look like or how that must have been Uh, taken place, but somehow they realize in their own body this transformation, this rejuvenation. Perhaps fingers grow back and ears and noses and toes come back to full health. In any event, their skin is suddenly cleansed. And they, I'm sure, look down at their arms and perhaps ripping off old bandages and looking and touching their skin and rejoicing. Can you imagine the excitement of this moment? These ten men who have formed this little colony of outcasts, now suddenly healthy and alive. I mean, they can't get to the priest fast enough to let him know what has happened and to give them their pass back into society. They've got people to see. They've got things to do, and they are excited and thrilled with this healing. Imagine the scene. 
at verse 15, we have a response of one of these ten. When he saw that he was healed, he came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Uninhibited, loud voice, praising God, throwing himself at Jesus' feet. This is a man that is filled with thanksgiving. What a glorious scene it was. And what a glorious experience it was for him. This loud voice of praise, this voice he had raised up to call Jesus and ask him for healing, he now lifts up to God, exalting the grace and goodness of the Lord and throws himself at Jesus' feet. This is a man who sees reality. I think when people are ungrateful, that is, you could say at, at heart, it is an, a confusion, a blindness, a failure to really see what is happening, a failure to, to see reality. This man saw that he was desperately needy. And he realized that it was God's grace working through Jesus that granted him what he most needed. And so he gives thanks to Jesus. He acknowledges that Jesus is the source of his healing and strength. He joyfully acknowledges that Jesus is God's agent to bestow divine grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The bill of hell from the priest can wait for a moment. I have come to thank you for being God's agent and healing me. And we notice here that this man is a Samaritan. That's not a side comment of little importance. In fact, in the Greek text, it's really, if you would underline words, it's underlined. It's, it's emphasized in its position within the sentence. This man is a Samaritan. Not only are we to witness the power of Jesus over death here, but we are to see that Jesus willingly extends his grace to this Gentile. This man was a hated Samaritan. He was a heretic, religiously. And he probably grew up hating Jews. Now, leprosy has had something to do with changing his mind a little bit on that and had something to do with changing the Jewish men that he was with in this gaggle of lepers. But he had probably grown up hating the Jews. They had grown up hating him. He was a Samaritan. But here is this heretic praising God. And that strikes Jesus as very odd in one respect. And he says in verse 17, in response, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Is Jesus looking for geographical information here? I mean, clearly he knows exactly where they are. They're, go look, they're looking for a priest. He told them to do that. When he says, where are the nine, he's clearly not asking where is their body. He's asking where is their heart. The nine had faith, but they did not have gratitude. The nine had faith, but they did not have awe. Why is Jesus rebuking the nine here for not giving thanks to him? Is Jesus rebuking the nine 
because he's fishing for compliments, he's like a self-conscious old man that wants someone to compliment his new lawn ornament or something. I mean, you know, come on, guys, look what I've done for you. Is that it? Does Jesus need their praise to boost his sagging ego? Does he long for a gaggle of groupies to fawn over him? Obviously not. Jesus laments the fact that these men received the gift of God's mercy, but were not sufficiently awed by it. They ran to the priests to get their life back when they should have been running to Jesus for eternal life. Where are the nine? I think this is a question of sorrow. It's a question understood in the right sense of pity. Jesus had compassion and pity upon these men in their trial physically, but he is now showing true compassion for their spiritual failures, their blindness. They don't see reality. Where are the nine? They think they have received a gift from God. They have. I had only begun to give. Where are they? And I think we have to ask whether or not we're walking with them. And I speak primarily here to those who are believing, who have faith in God in some generic sense of the word, if not in a specific sense of the word. Perhaps in some analogous manner, you are connected to a Bible-teaching church. You receive the grace of God there. Perhaps in some analogous manner, you are reading your Bible and you are praying on a regular basis, and you believe that Christianity is true, and you're happy that you have in fact gotten some things figured out in your life because of the teachings of the Word of God, and your life runs a little more smoothly than it did before you were saved, or before you came into this church, or some other situation. But you know what? There's really no thank you that resonates in your soul. If I speak to you, you need to see reality. You need to see the grace and the goodness of God. And you need to be awed. Don't walk away simply gaining the external healing and not realizing that there's so much more. Jesus offers us life. And if we really see who we are, and we really see who he is, we should walk in awe. Is there a deep thank you, Jesus, that resonates in your soul every day? There was with this man. And Jesus responds to him. The man has responded to Jesus, and Jesus now responds to him in verse 19 when he says, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. It's an unfortunate translation. I encourage you to write in your Bible here. But made you well is really saved. Go, rise, your faith has saved you. I agree with many conservative commentators and many uh, of the um, renowned Lucan scholars who would say that this reference here is not to the healing of the body, but to the healing of the soul. 
Your faith has saved you. In other words, his comment is in the context of where are the nine. In other words, unlike the nine, your faith has saved you. All ten have been healed. So he's not talking about that. Your faith has brought you healing physically, but your faith has saved you. This Samaritan did not take God's gift and run away with it for selfish advantage. His faith was the kind of faith that worshipped. And as it was the kind of faith that was in awe of the grace of God, it was saving faith. Your faith has saved you. It made him well physically but it also made him well spiritually. And Jesus grants to this man something unique from what he granted to the other nine. We must not miss the significance of this in the context of Luke at this place in our journey. This man was a Samaritan. We need to chew on that. This is very good news. For Gentiles it's just a little trickle of grace it's just a little sign of what is to come but Jesus speaks to this Samaritan on a level the two of them eye to eye you see how interesting it is the first person ultimately that this man chooses to be close to is Christ He comes back to Jesus, imagine this, being a leper for who knows how many years, and now he can stand right next to somebody and have a conversation with them, and he goes to Jesus. And he looks in his eyes, and Jesus does not say, you are a Gentile, I can't talk to you. That's what the rabbis would say. Perhaps universally at this time, they would say, you're a Samaritan, we have nothing to say to you. Jesus looks this Gentile in the eyes and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's happening in the big picture? See, there's a little prophecy here, that's all. Just a little prophecy. Jesus will beat death. Leprosy is a sign of death. Disease is a sign of death. We are all dying. But here at this place, Jesus shows that he has power over death, giving this man his life back physically, temporarily. He gives him life. That's what's going on. It's a prophecy here, but I think there's also a prophecy here that this man, as a Gentile, is a precursor of the Gentile mission. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10. Believe me, as Luke is writing this, I'm sure that he can't wait till he gets to that next book and begin to tell the story of the early church and how the mission and the gospel of Jesus Christ went to the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10, or Acts chapter 8 rather, and to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. This is a prophecy. It's just a little trickle of grace at this point, but the harvest has begun. The harvest has begun. The Gentiles will be received by Jesus um, into the people of God. And so I wonder for us who stand on this side of the cross, do we find one another this day 
worshiping at the feet of Jesus? Do we as Gentiles perceive the reality of what God has done in Christ and the grace that He has provided for us as Gentiles? We've had 2,000 years to get used to this idea. And it probably doesn't awe us in the way that it ought to, but we got together here today as Gentiles. That's amazing grace. And as Gentiles, not the Israel chosen in the Old Testament through Abraham, but those who by faith are in one sense the children of Abraham. Through faith we have come to know God. We gather here as Gentiles to worship Him. And we have sung songs of praise to this God. Jesus opens the eyes of natural ingrates and He chooses them from among the nations and He gives them life so that we can praise Him. Not so that we can be sociable and give proper thanks to God, but so that deep within our soul there is a response to God's grace. And that grace has come to us as Gentiles in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks, Christian, today. Think of it. Jesus Christ died in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. He took on the curse of God for you. Give thanks. Jesus Christ, through His death and resurrection, provides for us the forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14. He forgives us. Give thanks. Think of who we are as Gentiles in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has said that there is now in Christ no condemnation and nothing will separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 1 and 35 through 39. Give thanks. As united to Christ, we can say, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength, who works in me to will and to do of His good pleasure. Paul's word to the Philippians. We can say as we give thanks that I have been adopted as a child and qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. I have a place in the coming kingdom of God. I have a place with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a Gentile. Give thanks. Jesus is preparing a place for us in eternity. John 14, 1 and 2, give thanks. We have the hope of eternal life. Give thanks. The result should be, as we consider what God has done for us in Christ, a heart filled with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be a mindset, a spirit, an aura that surrounds us. Ingratitude clouds that spirit and evaporates that aura. Ingratitude is the fog that comes in when we lose sight of the glory of Jesus. How ugly it is 
When we consider what we have in Christ, how ugly ingratitude is. How ugly is a heart that is, that is empty of thanksgiving. What is going on in your heart? Is there a banquet of thanksgiving? What is going on in your own soul? What is going on in your home? Is it a place of giving thanks? Is thanksgiving an aura that pervades in your home? Is thanksgiving an aura that pervades in our assembly? How ugly, how wicked it is for us to spend our days complaining and moping or simply ignoring the grace of God that is given to us in Jesus Christ. How ugly and wicked it is for us to come to church and to sing half-heartedly. What does that mean, to sing half-heartedly? What, is, what does it even mean to sing with apathy? When we as Gentiles gather from among the nations, to worship at the feet of Jesus Christ. God has poured out His grace upon us in Jesus. Have we been healed of leprosy? No. The true believer of Jesus Christ has been healed from the curse of sin. We have been given security in heaven and inheritance with Christ. What we have received is so much greater than what these lepers had received, which is one reason why Jesus says, where are the nine? I've got more to give. And it is now our joy, like this leper, to fall at his feet and to worship and to give him thanks. Not as a matter of social politeness, but as the explosion of a heart that revels in the love of God. I exhort, I call upon you, I encourage you, Eden Baptist Church, to say in our hearts every day and at all times, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Does the aura of gratitude surround your soul? By God's grace, it will, as we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and realize who we are, who He is, and what He has done to give us His grace. There's nothing left but to give thanks. Let's come before Him with our prayers of thanks. We give you glory, our Father, for the truths I think, frankly, that we all forget. To remember the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus. To remember the mind-boggling mystery of the church as the new man, Jew and Gentile, united in one, 
God, how quickly we forget. How easily we get comfortable with your grace. How easily we take it for granted. Lord, we have just traced out a few of the theological truths that come to bear in the life of the believer, but I pray that through the Spirit's ministry we might think and contemplate more deeply as this day passes and give praise and thanks to you for all that you've done for us in Christ, for the grace that has been extended to us in Him. God, teach us to be pilgrims that are filled with faith and thanksgiving. We give thanks to you, Father, for all these things that you have provided for us through Jesus, and we give you glory. Father, if there's one here who has benefited from the blessings of Jesus, but has not come to Him in awe and worship and has not come to Him ultimately for salvation, I pray that You draw that person to Yourself today and grant them life, <coughs> grant them a spiritual healing. For those of us who know You, all we can do in our hearts is say thank You and pray that You will make us grateful people grateful and hopeful as we look ahead to the salvation that has been provided in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.